They say that it's artists who have their thumbs on the pulse of the people. Um, that is certainly true for musicians. And some of the most powerfully memorable, timely, iconic music in any era is the protest music that it creates. Uh, one of my favorites, um, going back to when Zach and I were running around harassing you people here at Clyde Christian Bible Church, um, one of our favorites was always Bob Dylan, uh, one of the most influential, iconic musicians who ever lived. And he rose to fame by taking the sound and structure of traditional folk sounds and adding poetic twists. And you're probably familiar with a bunch of his songs. Blowing in the Wind asks rhetorical questions meant to provoke thoughtful change. Questions like, how many times can a man look up before he sees the sky? How many ears must one person have before he can hear people cry? Another one would be The Times They Are Changing, which added momentum to the swelling social changes of the 60s with lyrics like, come mothers and fathers throughout the land. I, I considered singing it in my Bob Dylan voice, but I'll spare you all. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are changing. It's powerful lyrics and meaningful lyrics. And and in a time of great social change, people hung on to those lyrics. Many of my favorite artists, bands, albums, and songs share a prominent theme of protest. In a couple months, I get to see one of my all-time favorite bands, a band called Rage Against the Machine. Uh, don't listen to their music. Just, you won't like it. But um, they helpfully put their entire ethos right there in the band name, Rage Against the Machine. Um, they play very heavy music that protests against things like the insidiousness of the entertainment industry, corporate greed, and historical injustice, injustices against Hispanic people. They have a song that is literally called Voice of the Voiceless, which is a helpful description of what protest music is intended to do. Give a voice to those who have had theirs taken from them by the injustices of others. Those others may be political forces, social constructs, racial biases, whatever forces bring marginalization and inequality and violence and hatred on a people group. That's where protest music thrives. In fact, there are many forms of entire genres of music that originated as forms of protest. Folk music, uh, the blues was a form of protest. Even old country and western, there's a lot of protest elements to that. Punk rock is a protest uh, genre. Rap is a protest genre. Heavy metal. They were all intended as outlets for powerless individuals to stand up against governmental injustices, relational breakdowns, Social restrictions, racism, sexism, alienation, anything, any kind of pressure that, that people are facing, they turn to music and make music that fights against that, those pressures. And it's no coincidence that some, most of these genres, for sure folk, for sure um, the blues, for sure rap, were originated by African American communities. Several years ago, there were waves of protests by the African-American community against the enormously disproportionate amount of police brutality against black individuals and a lack of consequences for it. You might remember this as Black Lives Matter, the movement. Well, in 2015, an artist that I greatly admire named Kendrick Lamar released a song that crystallized all the anger and fear and hope of African-American people at the time. It's a bouncy rap song called All Right. He didn't release it as a tribute to, or as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, but the people in that movement clung to that song anyways. And at rallies all across the U.S., you would hear black voices chanting, I messed up, homie, you messed up, but if God's got us, then we gonna be all right. 
and they would bounce. They literally they'd be just shouting, "We gonna be all right." Um, and I've seen the videos. It's powerful. It became a rallying cry of hope in a time of injustice. And chanting a song like "All right" is just part of a very, very old tradition. In fact, many of our favorite old hymns and choruses don't have their origins in fancy sanctuaries and high churches, but in the cotton fields where slaves sang together their shared griefs and their shared hopes in the God who hears the oppressed. But you can go back a lot further than the early 19th century to find voiceless people using protest music to proclaim justice and hope and power to the underprivileged of society. In fact, the Old Testament is full of these exact kinds of songs. There's even a lovely little songbook tucked into the middle of your Bible, a little hymnal right in the middle of your Bible called the Book of Psalms that are full with numerous examples of protest songs railing against rival nations, corrupt leaders, personal failures, and even Almighty God himself. God included songs that protest God. How was that for honesty? The first thing that the Israelites do upon crossing the Red Sea is sing a song with Moses and Miriam. And most of the content of that song is simply celebrating the fact that their oppressors, who they'd been protesting against for centuries, Pharaoh and his armies, have been thrown into the sea. It's a protest song of, ce- of celebration and victory. It's a song of praise that finds joy in a powerful God who brings them justice. Later in Luke 1, Upon reflecting on her special blessedness as mother to the Messiah, Mary sings a song that celebrates a lowly, faithful person like herself being elevated in status to that of greatest honor, which is the first word in the song in Latin. That's magnificat, which means glory. That's why it's called the magnificat. Um, Praising the God who raises up his servants. It's joyful, it's celebratory, but it's also a protest song. It condemns the power-hungry and the self-obsessed while offering the hope of victory to the hungry and the humble. In other words, from All Right by Kendrick Lamar in 2015 to The Times They Are a Changing by Bob Dylan in 1963 to The Magnificat at Year Zero, protest songs have inverted the power structure for those who are vulnerable, small, oppressed, and voiceless. They invert the power structure. They give power to those who are powerless. They have brought hope where there was despair, truth where it had been muzzled, and change where those in command refused it. They are defining songs for their day and age. And today we're going to read an example of exactly that kind of song. A protest song, a song of celebration and praise sung by a formerly depressed woman who was given life out of barrenness. She had been voiceless, she had been futureless, until God remembered her and lifted her up. But it's also so much more. It's more than just Hannah's song. Well, we're going to call it Hannah's song, The Lord Who Raises. But Hannah's song is more than just Hannah's song. Hannah's song is nothing less than the formula for the entire rest of the books of First and Second Samuel. It's a template, not just for the next few centuries of kings, but the next few millennia of followers of Yahweh, God. So let's read this powerful, praise-filled protest song in 1 Samuel 2, 1-10. Then Hannah prayed and said, we had dinner last night with our friend Julia, who's uh, a young woman who's going to lead a thing in Europe. And I told her that I was going to be reading this, and I mentioned I was going to be mentioning Kendrick Lamar, because I know that's a song both her and I like, and she said I should rap this. Uh, I should rap the song of Hannah, but... As I spared you the Bob Dylan voice, I will spare you the Hannah rap as well. 
Sorry, I didn't practice my freestyle. Maybe next time. It's not happening. Then Hannah prayed and said, No. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. By the way, you're going to see it's bookended by this image of a horn. It's kind of a confusing image. Nobody's really sure what it means. I assumed it meant the priests at times of celebration would lift a ram's horn in celebration. I thought it had something to do with that, but one commentary I read said it's literally like the horns of a bull, like when he's raising his horns in pride and power. It's that kind of image that he raises the horn. Whatever it means, it's an image of being exalted, of being lifted up in in power when once you were powerless. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, and those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, and she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord says poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What a powerful protest song. It's beautiful. We talked a lot about Hannah last week. She's an unexpected gateway into these stories of powerful men doing powerful things because she's a small, unheralded, depressed woman about as voiceless as an individual can be in the world of ancient Israel. In fact, when she does bring her voice to the house of God in Shiloh, the priest Eli thinks she's just a drunken miscreant. But God hears her voice. He hears her protests of worthlessness. He hears her pleas for, for redemption. He hears her promises that she will honor him with the son that she begs for. And so he hears her, he honors her, and he responds to her faith. God gives her more than a son. He gives her dignity and self-worth and hope. So when she honors her vow to Yahweh and brings the child back to serve the Lord, she is overcome with thankfulness and praise as captured by this song. And What a masterpiece it is. Hannah's song begins very personally. My heart rejoices. My horn has been lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. The song very quickly transforms from one woman's song of thanksgiving for the birth of a son and takes on a national focus, illustrating what this God's character means for the entire Israelite community as a whole, for all God's people. We'll talk about that in a little bit. In fact, even when Hannah does sing and rejoice in personal terms in verse 1, my, 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 I, the focus is never on the gift itself, but rather on the grace of the giver of the gift. The focus isn't on the gift, but on the giver of the gift. While fertility and childbearing play a major role in the song as a whole, 
Her own specific miraculous birth is only hinted at in passing allusions before she immediately moves on to draw attention to the God who remembered her and brought life out of her barrenness. She doesn't even say, you gave me a son. All she basically says that hints at the miracle is, um, in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. But it doesn't even mention specifically the birth of her son because she's not focused on herself. She's focused on the God who gave her this gift. Even her own intensely personal reflection is rooted in him. Why does she rejoice? His deliverance. Why does she boast? His deliverance. How has she been lifted up? By delighting in his deliverance. In these biblical songs, four is always a major turning point. It always plays a major role. So even when she explodes with gratitude for what has happened to her, Hannah retains no focus for herself. Instead, all glory goes to God for, as she sings at the close of this verse, for she delights in his deliverance. Even when she speaks of her own experience, it's to highlight the goodness of her God's grace towards her. And remember, her name means grace. And it isn't long before the rejoicing Hannah exits the song altogether. This is verse 1. There's nine more verses, and, and none of it is personal to Hannah. So she makes her praise, and then she exits the stage gracefully, leaving only one figure alone in the spotlight, and that's God. In a striking triple use of the confirming negative, meaning three times she says no, 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 three times Hannah makes it clear that this God who hears her and remembers her and exalts her is absolutely unique. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Repeating something three times in Hebrew signifies completion. There is no one. There is no one. There is no one. Hannah is therefore making an emphatic point. God has done this great thing for her. And there's absolutely, definitely, without a doubt, certainly for sure, no being as uniquely good and holy and trustworthy as the Lord, the God of Israel. Her Lord. When she says it three times, it's saying there is absolutely no one, anything like God, which is kind of what Dave was talking about in communion, about the glory. He is separate and unique and special and nothing we can imagine. There is no one like him, emphatically. And the remainder of the song draws attention to what this God, who is like no one else, is like. Namely, he is on the side of the voiceless and the vulnerable, and he will reorder all of creation in order to raise them up. You'll probably remember that the source of Hannah's depression wasn't just her own inability to conceive a child. It wasn't just her own inner wrestling with worthlessness and frustration. That contributed to her depression. But there was an external source as well. Anybody remember who that external source was? Who was making life hard for Hannah? Yes, Linda. Linda's her rival wife. So uh, her husband Elkanah was married to another woman, Penina. Penina could give, give birth. And she rubbed that in Hannah's face every chance she got. So it's likely that Penina was in mind when Hannah speaks of enemies in verse 1 and sings in verse 3, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. She's probably thinking of Penina. Shut your mouth, you arrogant woman. Um, Penina is also likely in mind when Hannah sings of she who has many sons pining away, whereas the one who had no sons is exalted. As emptiness of soul, uh, despite a fullness of blessing, that's Penina's experience. She's full of the blessings of God, but 
her soul is empty, and she uses her blessing to belittle someone else. And Penina is probably the wicked in mind in verse 9 who will be silenced in the place of darkness. Penina is really getting hers. So, maybe don't say bad things about people who can't control what their bodies do to them. Like later in the book of Kings, when Elijah calls down bears to eat a bunch of teenagers who make fun of him for being bald. We can't help it, okay? We didn't choose this life. This life chose us, so just back off already. Or else an eternity of empty longing and silent darkness will await you. So if you want that, you keep making fun of me and my baldness. You keep, If you're Penina, keep making fun of the woman who can't bear children like you can. It's out of their control. So don't make fun of them. By the way, I love bald jokes. I think they're hilarious. Go ahead. I don't, I don't care. But obviously, intentionally, Hannah isn't merely speaking about herself and her own personal relationship with God in this song. It's not just about Hannah. The first verse is about Hannah, and the rest of it is about something else. Everything she says is true on an individual level. Hannah was personally vindicated in her suffering when her protests were heard by the Almighty God, who then delivered Hannah by having Hannah deliver Samuel. When she had that baby, it changed everything for Hannah. It gave her a hope and a purpose and a future. Um, and God did that. God, that was God vindicating Hannah's faith. It's a small story about one faithful woman being heard of God, which is what the name Samuel means, and her being raised up by mothering a child who would serve God in a very special way, as we'll read in the next coming weeks about the ministry of Samuel. This is Hannah's song about Hannah, by Hannah, for God. But it's also so much more. In fact, it's quite easy to see how this song will become the paradigm for the entire rest of the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Hannah's story and Hannah's thinking here is Israel's story and is how we should think about Israel's story. For example, Hannah was being bullied by an outside force, Penina. At the time that Hannah sings this song, Israel was being bullied by an outside force as well, the Philistines. And they're going to play prominently in the coming next six chapters or so. Hannah's womb was barren and lifeless and cold. Israel, in the time of the judges and under the bad leadership of the priests who we'll meet next week, they had grown religiously barren, lifeless, and cold as well. Hannah was a helpless nobody who was lifted up by God out of nowhere and exalted to demonstrate his loving power. Well, the same thing is true of Samuel. Samuel came out of nowhere and was lifted up to a place of prominence and power. Uh, Saul was, came out of nowhere was lifted up to power. David was just the eighth in a line of shepherd boys from the middle of nowhere who was lifted up to king of all Israel. Israel itself is a nothing community in the Middle East. There's all these major super military powers all around them. Israel's nothing, but God raises them up to prominence. Hannah's story is Israel's story. God, As God acted with Hannah, he will act with these leaders and with the nation itself. Israel, like Hannah, would need to learn in the words of verse 9 that it is not by strength that one prevails. Saul, David, Samuel, Israel itself, they are not strong entities, but God makes them strong. God lifts them up. And to prove that this song is more about Israel than herself, Hannah ends with a word about Israel's king finding his strength in God and being exalted in his, his humility, even though at this point Israel has no king. And nobody's certain that that's what's going to happen. And Hannah still sings about a king who will be exalted because he's humble. Well, that's what's going to happen. Her son is going to be the, the kingmaker who makes that happen. 
But they don't even have a king yet. So obviously this song that Hannah sings is about more than just Hannah. It's the paradigm under which all of 1st and 2nd Samuel will function. To understand 1st and 2nd Samuel, you have to understand Hannah's poem. That's why it's there. It's setting the stage for everything that will follow. It begins with Hannah's horn being lifted high, a portrait of dignity and strength, but it ends with the horn of the anointed king being lifted and exalted. Hannah's story is Israel's story. By the way, that's literally how the books of first, it starts with Hannah being lifted and ends with David being lifted up, just like the song itself. In other words, the lesson of Hannah's song is true throughout the books of Samuel. When Israel and or her kings get self-satisfied and proud and arrogant, then death and lowliness will come. They will be brought down. But when Israel and or her kings are humble and faithful and hungry for their God, then they will be lifted up and exalted like never before. And this is obviously true, not just of Hannah, not just of the kings, not just of Israel, but of all people through all history. Humble yourself and you will be lifted up. But that middle section is really something, isn't it? Slowly, methodically, almost gleefully, you can tell she's rejoicing. Hannah begins upturning every dimension of power and privilege in her world and our world today. Those who rely on their military power, well, their bows will be broken, as will their chariots and swords, as will their automatic weaponry and fighter planes and drone bombings. If you think you are victorious just because you can kill the most people the most efficiently, you are wrong. That is not true strength. Are you privileged enough to have to not have to worry about your next meal, eating your fill three times a day, never knowing the pain of hunger, refusing to help those who cannot escape those same hunger pains, then you will toil and never be fulfilled according to the song of Hannah. But those who hunger, they will be filled. Do you have abundant life all around you, but take it for granted? Do you give God no credit for the rich blessing of family and community? Well, then you will pine for more, and the life that you take for granted will give you no joy, according to the song of Hannah. But she who was barren will have seven children, which is the number of completion and fulfillment. She will know the peace of appreciation. Basically, if you're in a position of power and privilege and use it only for yourself, get ready to be upended. And if not in this life, then in the life to come. And conversely, if you have lived your whole life in want or need and no one has ever stepped up on your behalf, then you have an advocate. Somebody who will step up for you. And that's the Lord God Almighty. If you find your strength in anything other than God himself, then that thing will be stripped from you sooner or later. Military might, comfort and convenience, social identity, family and reputation. Those aren't necessarily bad things, but if you find all your strength and identity in them, they will eventually dissipate. They will eventually be gone. What will you be left with? Those things are fleeting at best, corrupting at worst. Dave talked about this in communion too. What is your idol? If it's anything less than God himself that you're worshiping and elevating above all other things, then you're going to be disappointed. As Hannah writes near the end of her poem, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. It's not by your strength that you prevail. God gives you strength. But if you put your trust in God alone and build your strength on him, and he will be a rock that cannot falter. And you won't falter either, no matter what the crushing wheels of society and humanity do to you. Hannah had no strength. She was a small, broken, depressed woman. 
reduced to weeping in the dirt next to the sacred tent of the Lord. Mocked by her peers, slandered by holy men, misunderstood by the one person who loved her unconditionally, her husband. But she was heard of God. He remembered her, and he raised her up to a position of dignity and purpose and glory. He is the God. I've been reading a commentary by a man named Walter Brueggemann, and it has been profound. Profound. And every sermon that I preach, I'm sure I'm going to quote Brueggemann. But this is a Brueggemann quote. He is the God of powerful transformations and a willingness to intervene. And those things go together. Powerful transformation and willing to intervene. If he had the power to transform but was unwilling to intervene on our behalf, then he would be cold and compassionless. He could not call himself a loving God. If, on the other hand, he was willing to intervene but not powerful enough to bring transformation, then he would be impotent and pathetic. But is our God cold and compassionless? Is our God impotent and pathetic? None of those things begin to describe God. He is the opposite of all those things. He is magnificent and glorious while also being loving and compassionate and kind. He is power, He is able to powerfully transform and he is willing to intervene to perform those transformations on us. That's the whole story of scripture. In fact, remember how important those four statements are in these songs? Remember I said these songs turn on the word four? There's another one in verse eight. A critical, crucial one in verse 8. After all the talk of contrast, death and life, down to the grave, raised up in life, poverty and wealth, the poor and the prince, after all those contrasts, there's a pivot point in the poem. Four, the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. What is Hannah suggesting here? She's saying that the same God who set the earth on his foundation is the same God who looks after the people who the powerful care nothing about. The pillars of creation has established God's will and he will not allow the world to sink in too far into chaos. He sets the world up. There's guidelines for the world. He is in control of the world. He will not let it sink into chaos. Is there pain? Yes. There is hunger and barrenness and poverty. There's death. But God also gives blessing and fulfillment and fertility and prosperity. There is life. There is death. There is also life because God has established this world on its pillars. God is in control. And the God who is in control is on the side of those who suffer. As Walter Brueggemann said in one of the most deeply impactful sentences I've ever read. In fact, I read this and I was absolutely floored by it. This one at the bottom. Yahweh, which is a name for God. Yahweh is free to reorder the earth and will do so on behalf of the marginal. The same God who set the world up on its pillars will and can reorder the earth. And who does he reorder the earth on behalf of? The marginalized, the oppressed, the lowly and the lonely. So that's the basis of Hannah's beautiful protest song. He is a God who raises up those whose society deems lowly and unworthy. The words lift or raise or exalt, which all have very similar meaning, are used six times in these ten verses. Those who rise up on the false perception of their own strength will be brought down. But those who find their strength in God, who trust him and rely on him, will always be raised up. Even if that raising up doesn't happen until we are raised to eternal life in his kingdom. We sang anastasis earlier. Anastasis means raised up. That's what it means. 
Just as Jesus was raised up, our final raising up, our final vindication will be one of glory for those who are faithful. That's our hope. In him, the lowly, small, hurting, and oppressed are lifted up. And so, quite obviously, Hannah's song is about Hannah, but mostly it's about all humanity. Now, I want to take an aside here. I prayed about this a lot and wrestled with how to say it, and I don't know if I worded it well, um, but I'm deeply convicted about it, uh, and I'm sure not everyone will agree with it. Hannah's song is about the hungry being filled, the lonely being comforted, the voiceless given a voice, the broken being made whole, all thanks to the great love of God Almighty. The God who founded the earth is free to reorder it as he pleases, and according to Hannah's song and Mary's song, the Magnificat, and the words of the prophets, and the Beatitudes, and the entire life and ministry of Jesus, according to everything we can discern from the width and breadth of Scripture, it would seem that when God does one day reorder the earth, he will found an eternal kingdom based on this fact. Those who are powerful and privileged and who do nothing will be brought down while those who are powerless and broken and impoverished will be lifted up. As Brueggemann writes, God is free to reorder the earth and will do so on behalf of the marginal. We see this throughout Hannah's song, among other places. Can we agree on that? God will tear down the proud who do nothing to help the poor, and he will lift up the poor and be the voice for those who are voiceless. That's from the first to the last words of scripture. You cannot escape this truth. Can we agree? Okay. Well, I need to speak out about something that I find disturbing. And when I say this, I absolutely am not blaming anyone in particular, and I have no one in particular in mind when I say this. But I find it shocking what this province is doing to the most vulnerable and victimized and voiceless members of society. I happen to be surrounded every day by children who qualify as the least of these, to quote Jesus. They're lower in status and privilege than even Hannah was in 1 Samuel. They are victims of trauma, abandonment, abuse, neglect, malnourishment, mental illness, physical limitations, and other variables beyond their control. For some of them, school is the only place where they experience love and healthiness and success. And what makes a difference in their lives are compassionate, dedicated, human supports. And before you think I'm being selfish and saying this because I need a job, and jobs in public education are disappearing at a ridiculous rate, I'm not. If I were in it for the money, I would go pump gas at fast gas and make more money than I make doing what I do. So I'm not saying this because my job is at stake, even though it is. And I'm not joking about that. I could literally make money, more money doing almost anything else other than what Trish and Angie and Petra and I do. The reason that I'm upset is because I'm not, I'm not in that job for the money. I could do literally anything else and get paid more money. But I'm in that job and we're in that job because it makes a difference in the lives of kids. And kids matter a whole lot to me and to the kingdom of God. And that is true of every single person that I know at that public school. And that public school, like all public schools in Alberta, is under attack by our provincial government. But let's not stick to schools. You can find the vulnerable and the voiceless in many other places, like the sick who will be robbed of adequate care if they can't afford multi-tiered health care. Like the children who are under the care of social services, including one child currently living in our home with us. 
our caseworker is supposed to have a caseload of 15 files. You know how many he's got because the government won't properly fund child services? 40. Nearly three times the amount he's supposed to have. And in March, their contract is up, and they will almost certainly be facing funding cuts, just like public education and public health. An already overstressed, overburdened system put in place to help the most vulnerable people in society is going to suffer even further. It doesn't make any sense to me. You will find the vulnerable and the voiceless in classrooms, hospital beds, and child apprehension facilities, but you'll also find them in supervised consumption drug sites. You'll find them on AISH, which was cut with only week's notice. People had to find new places to live with like two weeks notice because AISH wasn't going to cover their rent anymore. And where do many of those people end up? The streets. Essentially, wherever you will find the voiceless and the vulnerable in this province, the government is cutting their funding harshly with no compassion, sometimes with no warning. I just found out this week, Trish and Angie and I were funded through something called PUF, P-U-F, per unit funding. Kids who have the, the most behavioral needs, the government gives money for those children. My own child was a PUF child. We got some beautiful PUF children in this church. Our job is based on this PUF funding. And it was just announced this week, even though the government promised they wouldn't touch PUF funding, that it's going to get slashed as well. It's not me and Trish and Angie who suffer. It's those kids who suffer. I don't think I'm particularly great at my job, but I do my job and I care for those kids and other people who are great at that job rely on that funding as well. Say what you want about a balanced budget or job creation, which, by the way, the opposite of which is happening in this province right now. Alberta's lost 30,000 jobs since November. Say what you want about Trimming the fat on public services, that's fair, that's fine. Those are legitimate arguments. But if your whole argument against social programs that attend to the care of the vulnerable and the voiceless comes down to money, if your whole argument is just money, as in more money in my pocket, less money that I have to pay for taxes, more money for whatever, if I'm in favor of cutting spending to services that care for the most vulnerable in society in order to get a few extra hundred bucks on my tax return, then at the end of the day, I am not fit to sing the song of Hannah. I am in fact the problem that Hannah is railing against. And I don't know if that offends anyone. I hope it makes us all think. I have enough money. There's people who don't have access to what they need, who suffer because of it. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with working in the oil patch. I realize you've had it tough for the past few years if you work in that sector as well. But I also realize that the issues facing that particular sector go beyond just whatever political party is in office. Nor is there anything wrong with having voted for Mr. Kenny or the UCP government. You're not a villain for having done so. I don't intend to, to make it sound that way. I realize that he's breaking direct promises that he made to you that he would not cut funding to these crucial areas of support. I've seen the picture where he signs his signature on, I will not cut public funding. He signs his... It's a joke. I also realize that there is no political party that is good and pure and honest and, and we don't rely on the government to save us, ultimately. But our province is gutting public education. It's gutting health care. It's gutting child services. It's gutting AISH. It's gutting immigration supports. It's gutting 
Anything that doesn't look like an oil field job, all in the, in the name of making a few extra bucks for rich white guys who look an awful lot like me. And it will cost real people their dignities, their health, and their lives. And a lot of these things we just say it's okay because you know what, they're getting what they deserve. And if that's you saying they're getting what they deserve about any other particular group of people, then you are the problem that Hannah is railing against in 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10. Period. So please, don't read the song of Hannah with a smile on your face if you think any of this is just okay. It's not okay. This is my song of protest, and I don't aim it at anyone here in particular. Let me be abundantly clear. Nor do I write this because my job is at stake. Thousands of jobs are at stake in this province, not just mine at this little school. Rather, I write this because my job is to enable the success of children who need support. My job is to be a voice for the voiceless. That success becomes increasingly further out of reach with each dollar that's taken from that school or that hospital or that educational psychologist's office or that child service building or that ACE check. With every dollar that's taken out of those, real people suffer in real ways. We are creating the voiceless and the vulnerable, not assisting them while we grow full and content and strong on our own strength. What would Hannah sing about us, this province? What would God think of our provincial priorities, which the church is traditionally so quick to get behind? Can't we have a conservative government without slashing care for those who need it most? Can't we see that trickle-down economies have never worked and will never work? Because when the rich get richer, they don't share. I don't understand. I don't understand why this government is doing this. But I can't let it go by without comment. Not when we read a song by a voiceless, vulnerable, lowly woman who praises the God that raises the weak while bringing down the self-sufficient and the proud. Yahweh is free to reorder the earth and will do so on behalf of who? The marginalized. The voiceless. Not the middle class. We're fine. The hope of the weak is rooted in the power that holds the world together. That's true even when there is government support of social programs. I'm not saying NDP is the solution. There's no government that's the solution. Ultimately, cuts or no cuts, funding or no funding, it's God who saves, not government. Not Eleanor Hall School, not Chris Lance. It's God who raised Hannah up. It's God who took her from barrenness to glory. And it's God who will do the same for Samuel, David, and Israel itself. All of them will be taken by God from smallness and weakness and anonymity to glory and strength and security. It is not government, it is not people who save, it is God who saves. And he will save these people who are being made increasingly voiceless. Because that's who his priority is. Obviously, in scripture, obviously. But I don't understand why we prioritize all this cutting to people who need those supports. That is obviously a tough piece of writing for me to transition from. I was shaking as I wrote it last night. I'm so fed up with the news of cuts because there's so much frustration at the callous nature of these governmental cuts. I know that I'm naive. I know that I have one distinct perspective, but I try to make my perspective the same as God of Scripture, just like you do. I try. And the God of Scripture always seems to be on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, the vulnerable, and the voiceless. 
If God is their voice, then my view is that I'd better try to be their voice as well. So I'll pay the taxes, I'll risk the government inefficiencies, I'll wait the three hours of emerge because other people need care before I do, and I'll get sworn at and bitten and kicked at by the traumatized five-year-olds at our school. And then I'll sing the song of Hannah, and I'll trust that God hears the cries of the vulnerable and the voiceless, and I'll do my best to ensure that I'm not the one contributing to their suffering. When you are the one contributing to the suffering of the lowly, then you will always be on the wrong side of Christ. The same Christ who said, blessed are who? The poor, for great is their reward in heaven. Woe to the rich. Blessed are who? The hungry. And woe to the well-fed. The same Christ who once called himself. He said, I am the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And who declared that your entrance into eternal life has nothing to do with the morality you forced or the church services you attended or the votes you made, but what what made you worthy of eternal life was instead based on the love you showed, the feeding, the quenching, the inviting, the clothing, the healing, and the visiting that you offered to the vulnerable and the voiceless. I mentioned earlier that protest songs are often the songs that best capture a moment in history. Bob Dylan crystallized the social unrest of the 60s, cotton-picking slaves rebelling against their inhumane Christian masters by invoking the name of the God who remembers the oppressed, Kendrick Lamar affirming the hope that black lives will be all right in the face of injustice. These artists and countless others have refused to back down to systems of corrupt, dehumanizing power. They refuse to be ground down by the gears of brutality or outdated morality or life-taking hatred. They don't fall to history. They make history by rewriting it in a new image. In 1 Samuel, history is about to be completely remade by the one who fashioned the very foundations of the earth itself. And like those other protest singers, it is Hannah who gives voice to this massive new shift. It's Hannah who looks the beast in the eyes and backs it into a corner, knowing the character of the God whose strength surpasses any other beast, whether that beast is a person, a social order, or a nation, or a government, or anything else that stands in the way of human dignity and worth. That is the beast, and Hannah backs that beast into a corner. It's Hannah who rejoices in the face of injustice, suffering, and even death, knowing that her God is able to raise his faithful servants if they cling to him. He has the power to transform and the will to intervene on our behalf. He will reorder the earth to make us heard and to make us loved. If this is your government, then it's, it's your government and my government. You have a voice. If you don't like these cuts, I've already written a four-page letter about educational cuts. No one's going to read it, but it felt good to write. And I'll send it to Mr. Van Dyken, who is a man I have a lot of respect for and who knows my name and has shaken my hand. I've, I got nothing necessarily against those people or people who voted for this government. Nothing. But I have a problem with what this government is doing to the voiceless and the vulnerable. A real problem. And I feel like if you take Hannah's song and the breadth and width of scripture seriously, it should be problematic to you as well. You have a voice. We can do something about it. We can be a voice for these people. And if the government is not going to step up, if they're going to cut funding to these crucial social programs, then it better be the church who stands up to fill that void. If we're going to just sign off on these things, then we better step up where they are missing. Anyway, I hope you're not offended. I did not intend to offend, but I am deeply offended by what is happening to these kids who I value so much. 
and is going to continue to happen unless we make our voices heard. Let's pray. God, it is not us who save. It is not a government who saves. It is not a morality that saves. It is only you who saves. You are the one who lifts us up, who raises us up, who exalts us, who takes us from humility and lowliness and brokenness to glory and eternal life. You do that. Only you. And we know there are lots of people in our community who are suffering and are hurting and have been for no matter what government's in place. But Father, um, help us to be a voice for the voiceless. Help us to protest where there is injustice. Help us to fill the gap where social services are lacking. Help us to be people who are known not for the morality we proclaim, but for the love that we show, the love that you show us. Um, Father, there are people who will increasingly suffer at these cuts, and we don't just pray for them. Help us to be people who join and partner with them in their grief to relieve some of their grief and suffering. That's what you do, Father. You lift the vulnerable and the voiceless up. Theirs is the kingdom. So help us to join them in that kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Yahweh is free to reorder the earth and will do so on behalf of the marginal. But if God's got us, then we gonna be all right. We gonna be all right. We gonna be all right. Sorry, I didn't practice my freestyle.